Rutgers legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Well, hello there, my friend, and welcome to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host and founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And today's guest is one I'm very excited to finally welcome back on to CPG. He's an award-winning co-host of one of the most popular and revered poker podcasts, The Chip Race, along with past CPG guest Dara O'Kearney the cheery, exuberant, and sometimes controversial Irishman, David Lappin. David took an atypical path to the world of poker after spending seven years in college studying arts, philosophy, and screenwriting. He's also an ambassador for Unibet Poker and, of course, a world-class poker combatant himself. In my experiences with David, who's sometimes a polarizing figure in the poker community, I found him to be a continually entertaining and passionate ambassador for poker who genuinely cares about the game moving forward into the future. He and I share a myriad of passions, attitudes, and interests in and out of poker that you're about to learn all about. In today's thoughtful and greatness bomb dripping conversation with David Lappin, you're going to learn why one of the biggest names in the poker world won't ever be on CPG or the chip race. Hilarious and unbelievable stories about David's life on the tournament circuit, the surprising downside of being a sponsored poker pro, and much, much more. So without any further ado, I bring to you the always entertaining, engaging, and thoughtful David Lappin. Mr. Lappin, welcome back to Chasing Poker Greatness, sir. How have you been? I've been very well. It's an honor to be uh, invited back on any show. Although you are the mass producer of podcasts, uh, you, you told me off air that this is the 11th one you've recorded today. So <laughs> I, I, I really appreciate it. But I also feel like I'm just part of a sort of a, a factory sort of conveyor belt style these days too. Yes, you're a cog in the system. <laughs> and it's not that your first conversation went so well. It's just, I need people and... <laughs> <laughs> gotta do what you gotta do, right? That's that's why you're having me on the chip race uh for next season, right? Exactly. That that's actually the very same reason why I ended up with my girlfriend. Uh because oh. we'd, gone, we'd gone out once before and then she had tried other people and then just you know eventually you just had to come back to me. Yeah, so it, okay, so it was her, not you. Um yeah. that, that I, makes more sorry, sorry, sense. Actually, I need to be careful. I I didn't mean <laughs> if Sharon ever listened to this show, I didn't mean for that to suggest that she had tried out that many other people. I'm sure <laughs> it was like the right number of people. I'm sure like a polite, demure number of people, but uh other people and then me again. Yeah, so basically you made an impression. You you made an impression you were good enough to keep around for a little while. Um you mentioned there that are we having you on the show? And I do have to say that uh, I've fought so hard over the years to keep you off the show, but Darrow Kearney has finally got his way and we are having you on, I think, in like a month or two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I knew Dara was Dara, <laughs> Dara pushes hard and I knew He's where I, I knew he, where the bottleneck was, David. It was never a question. <laughs> I knew. 
Um, the bottleneck is is the fact that we don't make that many shows, and like you kind of don't fit into all the slots because. Well, actually, that's not true. We obviously could have you on strategy as well, but we never have anyone else on another slot unless they've been on as a guest first. That is right. actually a really helter in all but one case. So we had to have you on as a guest first. And there's just a lot of people, as you know very well, there's a lot of people in poker. Um, in fact, we, we've probably, um, we're probably having you on our show at an earlier point in our show than yours because you're on episode like i think this is like 673 now. So. <laughs> yeah 1232 actually but <laughs> yeah. who's, who's counting no i mean so like we we're having a conversation about in the uh the pre-interview i wear that as a chip on my shoulder where you know like and i've talked about it a number of times on the show recently but like it gets me fired up because like as a cash game player you go under the radar and you don't always get a ton of recognition. You you don't get the prestige of winning a ton of money publicly, right? In the MTT streets. And what's sort of happened with me over time is that, you know, this is my life. Poker has been my, my life for 17 years. And I think that when I started the chasing poker greatness podcast, it was fun. It's exciting. I love doing it. Don't get me wrong. But at some point, like the perception of me started changing from like my my inner circle to from like a professional poker player who competes at a high level and thinks about the game at a high level to more of a content creator. And that's something like that I've struggled to kind of come to grips with of like, I don't want to be a content creator because like I do want to be a content creator, but I'm also a fucking animal at the poker table too. Right. Like, and so I guess I, I felt like I've kind of like losing that identity by spending so much time and energy, um, releasing shows and just doing all these other things that like that sort of, I, I like having the chip on my shoulder of like, yeah, it's okay to be underestimated as it relates to poker talent or poker ability. Um, I'm just going to get in the streets, play, uh, some high stakes cash games and remind people you know, where I came from. Well, look, I do have an overlapping story because I can relate. And mm-hmm. uh, so before I was a poker player, or at least it was at least a little bit of time right at the beginning, for me, that's going back about 14 and a half years. Uh, I was a screenwriter, pretty new to that too, but had had a little bit of success early and was trying to, you know, get into that world in a big way. And when I was a writer and I was sort of dabbling with poker and making a bit of poker money on the side, I didn't like if a stranger asked me in a pub, what do you do for a living? I used to tell him I was a poker player because I thought like writer is so wanky and then you don't like, and I hadn't had anything like the TV show I was working on hadn't been made yet. So it was like, can't actually point to anything that they could tangibly understand. So I used to say I was a poker player. And then when I became a poker player, I started feeling bad about the fact that I was a poker player. And when that same person, that same stranger in the bar would ask me, what do you do? I told him I was a writer. And I realized after a while that what's actually happening there is I'm deeply ashamed of myself. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, process. yeah, th- this is a great story to tell your therapist, I think. Um, yeah, I, I, re- I realized that uh, I don't have to pay you for this, do I? No, that's okay. I, I don't think, not yet. It <laughs> uh, depends on how deep I go. Um, yeah. um, no, I, I think what, what it was really manifesting was that I, there's something kind of cool about being a poker player. And there's something kind of cool about being a writer. But there's also something kind of ignoble about being a poker player. And there's also something kind of 
frustrating and like you're an artist and that's kind of a wanky thing when you're a writer so both jobs kind of have aspects that you want to embrace and then but they have aspects that you don't and I think that's what I struggled with or maybe still do and I, and I suppose these days or at least for the last four years merging the two by being a kind of a poker space content creator and I, I do hate all those terms but I guess they do apply I do feel better about myself overall but then like I used to do very well and punch much higher relatively 10 years ago as a poker player I've sort of sacrificed that to do the other now and I'm okay with that but you know you still feel it like you still would like to be in there maybe playing higher stakes than I do or whatever it is so it's it's a funny one it's a funny one I I still would like to think that with a bit of opportunity to not make content and just sharpen up my game for a little while I could get back to punching with um, maybe not the very best of them but you know close to the best of them but it is a struggle because I, I don't want to let this other side of things go because I get a bit more overall fulfillment from it yeah it's uh it's a dance and when you play poker when when you're successful for you know over a decade, it becomes a large part of your identity and how you view yourself, right? Like I view myself when I walk into a card room as a high stakes player and I'm going to sit down and whatever, I'm, it's my comfort zone. I'm going to compete and I'm going to play at a high level. And, and like over time, if, if you're not doing that very much and you're releasing content and you're like, now your kicks are in how many downloads you get per episode, um, you're like, man, I miss the streets. Like I miss, I miss battling. I miss the competition. I miss seeing what I'm made of. Um, and proving that like, you know, proving that you can still compete at the, at the highest levels of poker. I think that's, that's an important part of it for me. I will be honest though. The, the, the getting my kicks from the number of clicks is not part of me at all. Really? Um, Dara always says that I'm sort of a contrarian by nature. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I used to have this rule when I did Twitch for a year that if you subscribe to my channel, you got blocked because I didn't want subscribers. (laughs) I didn't want people giving me their money or I felt uncomfortable about the whole relationship. So I don't know. Like, I obviously I'm really happy that lots of people listen to the show. I'm really happy when people say something nice about something I wrote. And uh, and that's all great. And I suppose ultimately I'm very happy that Unibet keep paying us to make it because that's the the sort of main incentive, I guess. But from a personal point of view, the main incentive is twofold. One is working with Dara, who I genuinely love working with. I think he's a great collaborator. Um, he's an interesting person. He's a very close friend. And, you know, it's an opportunity to basically spend time with your friend, but you sort of get paid for it and you work together. It's a great scenario. And then secondly, sort of a personal satisfaction of being really happy with the finished product. And then, you know, when people say nice things, it's lovely. And I do get a lot of happy feelings, fuzzy feelings from that. But it's more about the other two things, probably, for me. I mean, I like all of it. Like, I I love the conversations. I love having people like you on. I love creating these relationships that give me fulfillment and joy. And, you know, obviously, let's be real to the listener. Like, you make more money playing poker. Um, at least, yes, I did for, for sure. At least for a while, right? It, like it, it takes a, a very long time to make comparable revenue from content creation, as you know, if you're a high level poker player. And so it's really a labor of love. And you know, that was sort of what we talked about too in the the pre interview was, 
how much content I put out, how many episodes of CPG. And it's easy for me because I love doing it. Like I love having these conversations and that's why I'm able to churn out so much content. And that's why like some other podcasts or poker podcasts that come out with like an episode every other week and then struggle to do so where it's like a chore to just put out that one show. I don't think that would ever be my problem because like I want to be here. I want to have these conversations. It's exciting to me and I get a big dopamine release at the end and yeah, I, I'm a nerd, so I look at the metrics and I'm. it makes me happy when I see my follower account go up and see my downloads going up over time. That gives me a little bit of happiness. But at the end of the day, if I'm being honest, I do the show because I love doing it. And it gives me fulfillment in a way that, yeah, in a way that beating people out of money for 15 years didn't really give me a ton of fulfillment um, doing the show does. Yeah, that seems pretty reasonable. And... So going back to you, what, what have you been doing this past year? Yeah, by the way, I, I do find it a little bit of ironic with you banning people that follow you on Twitch and not caring about the metrics. And yet, everywhere I see is you mashing these things up that are going viral all across the, the poker sphere. So I guess what's that about? <laughs> you mean the little video snippets I made for a while or still kind of make occasionally? To be honest, that was mostly to do with, um, oh, I, I kind of had a, a bugbear. I, I suppose I constantly do have a bugbear, which is that I like most people don't commit to an entire two hour podcast, for example. Um, most people won't read a long article. Like that's even too much for a lot of the modern uh, viewer these days or listener or reader. So I always feel like there's a huge danger that you end up with a lot of, um, sort of secondhand opinion. Someone says, oh, did you see such and such a thing? And you say, oh yeah. And you kind of make your opinion based on what they said and you might pass it on. And actually seeing the real thing take place is more reliable. And if you can sort of cut clips together, like essentially like no one was doing it in poker and you see it actually with the media. You look at the mainstream media, there are people who are like professional news clip tweeters and I just thought, well, no one's doing that for poker, really, not in any kind of somewhat regular way. We obviously had the Polk and the Granu stuff, which was creating a lot of good content, but most people weren't going to watch like five, six hours of that. So I thought, oh, well, once a week, maybe I'll just do a little snippet of the highlights or lowlights or funny bits or whatever. Mostly think- the lowlights. Let's be let's be honest. <laughs> There's a lot of lowlights, right? But then, like, I suppose it comes down to your opinion. I, I think that was one of the interesting things for me is like while I've had my run-in with Daniel, even maybe a couple of run-ins over the years, I never put those pieces out in an effort to antagonize him or present a bad side of him because actually, even though it might have been him swearing at his computer or stuff like that, I actually found that a much more human or likable or understandable side of him, if I'm honest. So I never put those with judgment. You'll never see those tweets go out going, Daniel Negreanu is an idiot. And then, you know, the the post, it was always just like Polk Daniel meltdown or, you know, whatever it was. And it was just a one word or two word description of what, what you were watching, but it wasn't, I wasn't trying to put past judgment on it. And if, if anything, I actually kind of don't have bad will towards people who are frustrated when they take bad beats or whatever. There are times when Daniel will say stuff that I do find reprehensible and I have absolutely made that clear on a few occasions but most of those videos wasn't that and it wasn't just the Polk Dean stuff I've made them about loads of different things um as well 
Um, and those are just the ones that I saw. <laughs> those are the ones that had yeah, the highest that, share rate and velocity. You're probably right that they're the ones that, that went a bit more viral. Like I make those same things for our own show. Now those ones don't get like a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand views. They might only get like twenty thousand views. But I push every like every episode of every show we make. I push a clip like that too. So it's just a, it's just also I kind of just got good making this little editing software on my phone. We <laughs> just lying in bed making them. So um, they didn't take too long. I kind of just thought it was worthwhile. I kind of thought, well, it's more likely people will actually have an opinion on the thing that actually happened if they see it and people will watch a two minute clip. So that's kind of what that was about. But but again, it's not like I didn't make, you can't make things go viral. You just make a video and sometimes they get fucking liked or shared by someone more famous than you and they go viral. That's kind of all that happens there. So it's not like I wasn't paying for promoted tweets to like spam everyone with my no 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 yeah fucking yeah. phone clips. <laughs> I mean the clips were cut together very very well. I mean they I I watched them and I don't really watch much of anything that happens on Twitter really. And I saw them they were they were funny and ultimately at the end of the day, someone was having those reactions in a public space, and so it's just fair game. Oh yeah! Oh no! I don't look. No, none of them would think it wasn't fair game if they go yeah. on Twitch or whatever and say it, and then someone clips it for Twitter. It's not like that's that's it. But it, it was just more for me. Like I think it was probably just me fucking about, enjoying doing a bit of editing. With you like stuff. antagonizing Daniel a little, right? Like there's a piece of you that like no, not not any piece no. at all. You get no, no joy I, out I, of I, antagonizing. I would, rather, I would rather have no interaction with them ever, really, to be honest. Like I guess <sighs> if there was if there was an opportunity to interview him in a sort of a fair sense where it was like, you know, maybe a, a proper interview space, I wouldn't turn it down because I think there would be some value to that and merit to that. And hopefully you would get an honest interview. Um, and I do consider myself someone who does decent interviews. So I, 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 w- I would, I don't want to say welcome it, but I would certainly not turn down that opportunity, but it's not something I'm looking for at all. Yeah. Um, and it's, and, I, and actually I would rather just like have no interaction with him. But then someone said to me recently, like, oh, you obsessively tweet about Daniel Negreanu. And then I checked my Twitter stats, which I almost never do. And I had tweeted Dineggs or Negreanu on, I think, 93 occasions. And I've sent 39,000 tweets. So I was like, <laughs> well, he's quite a dominant person in the industry I work in. That doesn't seem like overly weighted. But like what you said is it probably was a tweet that went viral or it was the whatever. So they maybe stick. that's why it's seen that way. Yeah, they that sticks in the memory, right? Like those yeah. those ninety three were more impactful than you know, whatever. <laughs> well, definitely a lot of like my cricket tweets, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> out of the thirty thousand tweets that you've had, let's let's be honest here. All of ours, we have at least fifty percent just total and complete bombs that uh, nobody ever reads or sees or even looks at again. And then some, <laughs> some that lots of people see, uh, and those are the ones that kind of stick in folks' memory. But all right, mm-hmm. fair. We'll say, if you tell me you don't enjoy antagonizing them, I believe you, and we can move on. Let, let's talk about the lock-in, uh, you know, your YouTube show that has sprung forth from the pandemic, correct? Like, that's something mm-hmm. that... Uh, that sprung from the pandemic. Tell me about that and what y'all have been doing over this past year. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. Uh, it was April 1st uh, last year, so pretty much a, a year ago, just over a year ago. And we decided that we should create some extra content and we didn't really know what it would be. We knew we wouldn't be playing live. 
for at least the foreseeable future. So we knew we would have time to make something extra at home. We knew we weren't offering value to Unibet Poker as live ambassadors because they would normally schedule 10 or 11 events every year. Roughly once a month, we'd go off to one of their events and we weren't going to do that. So we weren't going to be, you know, physical presence at things like that for them. And that was a loss of value for them, which we kind of thought, oh, well, you know, maybe cynically come, come contract negotiation time, they might've spotted that we're not as useful anymore. Um, but also just in a general sense, like you feel like you're part of a community in Unibet. It, it has a lovely um, community kind of based audience or consumer base. And it's all very intermixed. And, and those live events do enable you to get to know a lot of the players, which is nice. It's a kind of, a you know, one of the medium sized tours rather than the super big tours. So you do get to know everyone. And we just thought, well, we should try and do something for that audience. Uh, maybe piggyback some of the chip race audience, but maybe more importantly, find a newer audience on YouTube where we'd never really done much. We had done strategy videos at that point, which in fairness, some really popped and did quite well. But we only made one of those a month and you're never really going to build a YouTube channel doing once a month. So we thought, well, let's try and do a little bit of something else. We didn't know what it would be. Initially, you watched the first two episodes, just me and Dara talking, just reminding each other of funny stories or having an opinion on something that happened last week in poker. A lot of pandemic talk, like in the first episode or two as well. And then we sort of realized that this was just a bit low energy and it probably needed something a bit more focus to keep it going and we thought well let's get a guest on so we had Neil Farrell on we had Jennifer Shahadi on Jamie Kerstetter came on they were some of the early guests and we just knew they'd be fun people to talk to so we just similarly have the little triangular chat and then more and more the topical stuff kicked in so I'd say by maybe the fourth or fifth episode maybe a month or two in we realized that when we spoke about things that were going on in poker you might have a better quality conversation you might have a real substantive chat and then that sort of grew into the show. I think probably at some point around episode six, seven, eight, it pretty much became almost all that. You might kind of focus one question around the guest or something they're doing, but pretty much we talked about the, the three or four newsworthy topics of the week, all weighed in with our opinions. And I think it became a kind of a pundit show where we could, you know, flex that muscle, if you like. I think Dara and I are decent writers and we've written, you know, blogs over the years. Uh, Dara's blog is especially good, to be fair. And uh, I think we just kind of thought, well, this is an opportunity to sort of do those kinds of um, opinion pieces, but do it on camera um, to a YouTube audience, maybe find some new listeners for the chip race, maybe create a standalone piece of content in and of itself. And that's been really fun, actually. I, I, that's been a really fun new piece of content, much easier to make than the chip race. I do a little bit of prep on what we're going to talk about. Dara and I have a very quick warm-up conversation and then we just kind of go and it's like recorded in an hour and it's rendered and my girlfriend does the artwork and she cuts it together even though it doesn't really need much cutting. And it's a, it's an easier show to make. It only takes a few hours as opposed to the chip race where 28 man hours go into every chip race episode. That's a lot of lot of man hours, uh, 28 hours per episode. Yeah. Um, it kind of reminds me of a little story about the the potters and basically basically they had a competition uh amongst potters to see who could make the best pots and they had like two hours to make as many pots as possible and basically they found that the potters who made as many pots as they possibly could dramatically outperformed the one that spent two hours making one single pot right and to me it's like you didn't really 
know what you wanted for the lock-in, but you started making your pot and then you started figuring out and finding what you wanted over time. And then by episode six or seven, you knew what the lock-in was going to look like. And then you just uh, worked from there. But I think like for the listener, just bear in mind that like if you have an idea for something that you want to pursue, just do it and see what happens. And from there, like it's probably going to suck because most things that you do for the first time are pretty horrible. But over time, you get experience, you find out what resonates with the audience and what you enjoy doing. And that to me is just a really good way about trying out new things, just jump and then kind of ask questions afterwards. So yeah, kudos on the lock-in, kudos on the chip race. What else have y'all been up to? Have you been playing a ton of poker? I've certainly played more online poker in the last year than I did in the last couple of years, but that's mainly down to just having the, the, the no travel time and the no live poker time. I sort of settled into three days a week. I just play uh, Sunday, Monday and Thursdays, or sometimes I flick in a Saturday and um, and then take the occasional extra day off, but that's pretty rare. And then about twice a year when Unibet have a big series, I might play every day for a month or every day for three weeks or whatever that happens to be. And uh, And yeah, so that's been more online poker than I've played in quite a while which is good because you do definitely feel sharper, particularly into the second week of playing every day. Uh, so I, I, I see that, you know, you, f- you feel the muscle memory come back. You feel the brain engaging a bit deeper into spots. Um, I generally mass multi-table, or I guess what would still constitute mass multi-table. And these days, it's a lot less than I used to. Back in my prime, I was 40 tabling. These days, I'm 24 tabling. But I think as well, like you're you're giving up equity when you do that in each individual game. So fast good fast better decisions are things that take a little bit of practice getting so i always feel like when i'm not quite playing as often i do lose some sharpness and that shows in the results too i had a good result back at christmas i made the final table of the unibet open online which we did an online version much like every other live brand has done this year and that was nice and my good friend um porrick o'neill won that that was good fun that was sort of like making a, that was almost like making a live final table in my head. It was the closest thing to it this year. Um, but looking forward to maybe playing some live poker the, before the end of the year. Malta's caseload for COVID has come down quite considerably. There is talk of some festivals here in the summer. There's a good chance I might even be vaccinated by midsummer. My age group looks like it might be late June, early July. If I was vaccinated, I would certainly feel a lot more comfortable doing something like that. And then, of course, like the, the light at the end of the tunnel that we all feel right now, uh, that is Vegas. And just thinking, oh, we'll like go to Vegas in October. That could be fun. Yeah, I'm fully vaccinated now, which nice. feels pretty good. I'm pretty smug about getting access to vaccination and being vaccinated and happy to start doing some traveling to meet some of the folks that I've had on the show and some of the people that listen to the podcast that are members of my community haven't had that opportunity over the past year and a half. So I'm very much... Well, of course, people don't realize that you're actually 74 years of age. uh, So you would have been quite high up on the list, I'm guessing. Right. I'm 74. Um, Yeah, they're going to be surprised that I'm like four foot 10 as well. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to be shocked by I'm like a micro sized human that you can just fit in your pocket. It's it's not exactly true, but you know, 
whatever. Did, it, did my jealousy of your vaccinated body come off there? I hope it did. It, it did. Was it, it was yeah, intended. It, I felt it, but it just ping, <laughs> pinged right off me because I don't care. Um, <laughs> well, that's what vaccines do. They just, you're impenetrable, you know? <laughs> yeah. I don't give a shit about your, your um, jealousy. David, I'm happy being me. Um, yeah. So let's go back a little bit. Uh, so there is, shockingly, believe it or not, um, a format for the, these round two conversations. And oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Shockingly, I, I thought I thought about what we're going to talk about here. Um, and the first thing that I want to ask you was, who's your biggest influence in becoming a poker professional, and why? So, like, right at the beginning, kind of person, or yeah, it, it, or throughout. I mean, both. Like e- either or both, and it could be virtual. You know, it could be Mike McDermott. I think Mike McDermott, Mike McDermott, might actually be the biggest influence in me being a professional poker player. If I'm honest with myself, <laughs> um, well, that's an interesting question. I think that a combination of people on the Channel Four show, Late Night Poker, would certainly be the most influential. I wouldn't have known what poker was really before that. And then suddenly myself and my group of friends when we were still school age would play every Friday night for a fiver each or whatever it was. And that became a big kind of entertainment focal point for us where we'd sit around a kitchen table and, and play cards. Um, and that show was was sort of very special of its time, um, very atmospheric, very moody, emphasis on the personalities. Standard of play of the day was probably okay, but not great standard looking back is not very good obviously we've all moved on but they really captured something the filmmakers captured something fantastic in that show they really captured the um the players and made it seem sexy yeah that was very appealing and and i mean that's what makes for compelling poker content is the stories behind the scenes and where do people come from, right? Like that was the whole origin of Chasing Poker Greatness was like, I know because I'm a professional poker player that you don't just wake up one day at the final table of a major event, that there's a process from grinding, learning, growing, improving, and then eventually um, having your successes and your failures. And I wanted to know the behind the scenes story. And sometimes I think poker can kind of just jump straight to the game without going a little deep into where people come from. But ultimately... Ultimately, like the story, the, the you know, the 2004 main event with Chris Moneymaker, you know that he's an accountant from Tennessee. You, you know that his parents are in the audience watching him. You know that like this is one of his first live events ever that he's satellited in from, you know, an online tournament. And, and like knowing the behind the scenes, the backstory, spending the time to tell these human beings story who are on the big stage. I, I think makes for just a, a much better product at the end of the day. They become people that we root for people that we empathize with. And yeah, it's just necessary for good poker entertainment and content. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head. I think there's sort of uh, maybe two quite distinctly different approaches to content these days. One is still trying to do what you described there, tell the story. Um, I guess that's like the ESPN audience once a year for WSOP that used to be most of TV poker, but there isn't so much poker on TV anymore. And, you know, for a lot of reasons, one, just the natural evolution of technology, 
we're more stream based, we're more internet based now these days as a culture. And that means live streams and, you know, some of these package show streams. And they can afford to be a little bit more nuanced or clever because they're probably not attracting a new market. They're probably just pieces of content for already poker players who just want to see something cool. Um, and that's how they're finding it. So th- th- there are two kind of ways of doing it. And um, I-, I like both, to be honest. I really love watching, you know, Lon and Norm and Jamie do their uh, once a year thing on the WSOP. Um, I find it charming. I find it funny. You know, it's not deep level analysis all the time. It's, you know, it's the story of the event. But I think that's a great package TV show. And, and uh, you know, they're just brilliant at their jobs. And then similarly, I love Nick Shulman, as everyone does. And I, you know, love the sort of deeper dive commentators who can, um, you know, really break down a hand in real time and, you know, tell a story that way. I think it's great. Yeah. And it could be the best of both worlds, right? It could be, you know, just the best of both worlds where there's high level, just, just, don't forget about the story, I guess, is for like all the poker producers out there is the story is meaningful. The story behind the scenes matters. And it's why we root for our heroes or love watching, you know, the villains fall flat on their face or love watching Phil Hellmuth blow up and, you know, have like a five minute spot where you just can't understand anything he's saying because they're all curse words. And uh, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> I, I like I like all of it personally. So tell me the story of your favorite poker session ever or a very memorable poker session that springs to your mind? Oh, okay. Um, I guess it's probably a live deep run. Online poker, you know, it's quite solitary. You might have a little virtual rail of friends who are kind of like watching in the chat or maybe if you're doing it on stream, you have that effectively. But now live events have always been quite fun. Uh, quite early in my career, I had a result at the Full Tilt Espana series in Barcelona and I was lucky enough to have my girlfriend of of the time and a lot of friends on the rail and I was really green to poker and that was pretty much my first European live poker event almost Uh, I was very much an online player played a little bit in the states at that point but uh, that was that was kind of cool but that was a long time ago so um, more recently maybe I came second to Jack Sinclair in the uh, JP Masters which would be the sort of main side event to the Irish Open that was uh, maybe three years ago. Um, that was fun. Jack was a fun person to get heads up with at the end. Um, it was a, it was a good final table. It kind of went back and forth. I suppose some of the live stream stuff for Unibet has been really good fun as well. Like we would often put on these sit and go type things as a curtain raiser to a festival, and we've in the past invited Victor Blom to those, and that's always really good fun because Victor's a good friend of Dara and mine, a good friend of Unibet in general. And uh, and while he is a quiet sort, he is an intense person to play poker against and a fun person to chat to, uh, even though you might have to pull a few words out of him. He's a very good guy. You get a couple of drinks into him and get him into the bar later. He's full of chat. He opens up completely. <laughs> but he's, uh, but he's, he's an enigma in so many ways to so many people. So getting to play with him on those feature tables is often really good fun. Tell me about the energy level of going deep live. Because I think that like, yeah, uh, playing for high stakes or big tournament win online is one thing. And then playing at a live event 
or just playing live at your local card room. The energy levels are very different than online. So tell me about the energy levels going deep into those tournaments early on. What did you feel? What were you thinking? Well, early on, it, it, to be honest, it's it, it's almost like not memorable, similar to like when you ask somebody, uh, how, how did the beginning of that online tournament that you wouldn't go? You're like, I don't even remember that tournament. That was like a postage stamp on my screen. I was just multi-table. And then that was the only one left with, you know, a few hours to go. Um, so I guess a lot of live poker sort of blends into one when you grind the circuit like well, I do. You mentioned the one time. that your your girlfriend and you went deep and you were green. So it must have been a memorable experience, right? Well, yeah, that one was kind of special. The reason being was, I think it's the first tournament I ever satellited into from an online satellite into a live event that gave me a package. And then I got to go over to, to Spain. The package could have got me a hotel for five nights, but I decided to get a really not very nice but perfectly okay three-bedroom uh, apartment that all my friends could stay in if they came over so we did that instead and basically made a holiday out of it and I remember I went into day two quite short um, so short in fact that I remember my friend coming to me at the table and saying you know it was only half an hour into day two sort of saying uh, we're going for lunch here and dinner in this place let us know if you if you can join us or whatever and did I they said, play actually, poker? Was did they play poker? Were they poker players? A little, a little or they, bit. They just yeah. there for you. They were probably the kitchen table poker friends. As okay. I just okay. At the beginning. Yeah. And they said, and and actually said, actually, Suzanne, hang on there a second. I'm all in, <laughs> and I put my <laughs> chips in, and I was all in probably for fifteen bigs with ace king against kings, spiked an ace, and built a big stack for the next few hours, and never made it to that lunch or that dinner. And uh, made it to day three, which was about 13 people left, made the final table, one of the chip leaders. And by the time the final table hit, everyone was sort of suitably recovered from their hangovers and dragged themselves out of bed and were on the rail. And that was really good fun. Bottles of champagne at the end, even though I chopped it with the guy. So even though I lost, it was, you know, we sort of chopped the money and it was champagne. It was good fun. Yeah, I I can imagine that that's a very memorable experience. You had all your friends there staying with you in an apartment, going deep in your first live satellite tournament. I mean, that's pretty insane. And to be honest, it was sort of, I don't want to say life-changing because I'm not sure if my life changed that much afterwards, but it was significant. Like I, my bankroll at the time was like 25K. This was my end of my second year playing poker and I won 81K. That was like, wow, okay big boost that's a pretty nice early early result and a great story mm. um really just a great story for your first uh yeah your the first live event that you satellited in so we'll go from there to your least favorite poker session ever because that's the natural segue from all the good times <laughs> let's let's now dredge up a bad time Bad one. I, I went on a viciously bad run, I want to say like 2015 or 16 live, where I just, it was just one of those things where I was playing a lot of live poker and it just felt like I was busting two tournaments a day, not cashing anything, uh, constantly just getting the bad beats. And that's normally, you know, that's par, par for the course. But I remember it being a particularly protracted downswing and that being kind of bumming me out. I remember getting it in good in a tournament here in Malta, actually, and sort of almost like telling everyone, here, come watch how I'm going to get bad beaded here and getting bad beaded and walking and going, what the fuck? You know, I'm just so sick of it. Um, Darrow Carney and I went on a sort of a, a summer 
road vacation poker around uh, Europe playing, gosh, 10 or 11 festivals over 12 or 13 weeks. And I think at the end of it, we'd played 65 tournaments and we had one min cash between us. That was pretty grim. <laughs> um, and then, but then, to be honest, it's probably like silly, like funny, silly stuff. Like I remember in a hundred quid side event in uh, Newcastle, uh, literally the smallest tournament of the week. And uh, we were on the bubble and I had sent for Dara to come over here, come over, rail the final table. I'm going to make, make, make the final table. Got a good stack. And I looked down at aces. And I think I'm like two of 10 or three of 10. And I looked down at aces and I min raise under the gun. And the big stack, who's the only guy who covers me, looks at me and then looks at my stack. And just, I guess in his head, he was like, oh, all the ICM pressure. And just like shoves 40 bigs, snap him off. He's got the king five. And I end up bubbling that tournament. And I'm just like, remember, I remember Dara arrived just as I bust. I remember being like, <laughs> this is kind of a low point. I'm really pissed off about a hundred quid tournament here. That's not a great place to be when you're this annoyed about something that's not really important at all. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a sign things are not going your way. I, I do find it funny because I'll ask the question kind of knowing the answer of like, how, how did you feel working your way out of, you know, those bad times? Oh, yeah, that's good. I, I used to have this weird thing where, you know, you'd have your downswing and I guess the stakes I was playing initially, they might have been like three or four K. Then by the time I was in my third or fourth year, they were definitely like 10 and 15 K. And then I remember I had one real nasty one that was about 30 K. It's probably still my biggest downswing, which I know is not actually that much. I'm a very kind of bankroll cautious person. So I've always been good at like dropping down, like halving my stakes for a few weeks if I was not feeling it. Uh, just to get the confidence back, all that kind of stuff. Because I think a lot of bankroll management is actually about managing your emotions and managing your capability to take the pain. So I feel like that's as much of the management of of, of, the, of what you're doing. So, yeah, but like coming out of that, like getting the kind of couple of scores that sort of even get you back even on a horrible few months period. I remember like it always happened in the shower. I'd, just be, I'd be in the shower the next morning after the result and just feeling really good, just like, you know, water hitting you and just being like, okay, it's like, I'm back. Like, it's all of those thoughts I'd had for weeks of going, oh, I'm shit at this game. I Like, I've won hundreds of thousands of dollars playing poker, but like this 130k downswing, and I'm like, I was just rubbish. I was always rubbish. I was never <laughs> any good at this game. I was yeah. obviously just lucky. Everyone who said they shouldn't be doing this were right. And then you'd have this like shower and all the pressure would kind of go away and you'd be like, oh no, no, I actually... I can play. It's okay. Yeah. Like, like the day before you're in the shower and you, you hear the birds chirping and you're like, fuck you birds. Shut up. <laughs> you annoying piece of shit birds. And then like 24 hours later, you're like, this is so peaceful and nice. I love these birds. <laughs> <laughs> well, Life is just good. In a world where a fish dog bets the flop and you don't know what to do. One man, Coach Brad Wilson, has a surefire plan to neutralize flop leads and rip that dunk to shreds. Nuffle. Available now. Go to chasingpokergreatness.com slash nuffle. Rated R. So, John, you've used neutralized flop leads in the past 24 hours, correct? Yeah, so I got the basically the slide with all the info on it on Friday evening and yesterday I played a session of uh, 1KNL on Ignition and played one particular pot that I remember where a fish just donked flop turn river 
into me and I ended up winning with a hand that I would have folded before looking at the slide, but I ended up winning like a $400 pot instead and the course is $99. So <laughs> definitely paid for itself very, very quickly. And, and I think that'll be the case for even people that aren't playing as big as 510 No Limit. Like I think this is a course that will very, very quickly pay for itself given how how much more donking there is at lower stakes. And I think one of the most common questions I see asked in the Greatness Village Slack group is, what do donks mean? How do I deal with donk bets? I, I think that's gotta be like in the top three most frequently asked questions. You, you ought to feel very excited when somebody donks into you because some good things are about to happen. You said like, you probably don't need anyone to teach the course or like you can just look at the slide and, and learn all then for yourself. I feel like you, Brad, will have to be there because I am i am almost sure, sure that anybody who looks at the slide won't believe it looking at what they're supposed to do and will have to confirm with you that like you didn't make a massive typo somewhere and that this is actually what they're supposed to do because it's pretty shocking the optimal way to deal with fish donking into you on the flop is. If you'd like to check out Neutralize Flop Leads so that you're never again confused when a fish leads into you in a single race pot, head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash Nuffle. That's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash N-U-F-F-L-E. And now, back to the show. Tell me a valuable poker lesson you learned that felt pretty miserable at the time when you learned it. Okay, I'm definitely not going to name names on this one, but... When I staked poker players for a while, Dara and I and another guy called Dara, Dara Davy and uh, Jason Tompkins had a sort of collective. Uh, we were all Irish lads, mostly staking Irish guys uh, with a few Brits and Canadian or Americans thrown in. But it was it was definitely to do with that and exercising my judgment on that stuff, because sometimes you sort of you sort of know. But, you know, the guy's in makeup and you kind of think, well, anything he wins from now on is the upside of that. We get we get some of the money back. But you just kind of know already he's a losing player and you let it go longer and it gets worse. And you just kind of bury him in a hole and bury yourselves. And you know you're just going to have to let him go deeper and deeper in makeup. And there was probably a point, maybe a couple of times with with people we staked where, Deep down, maybe at least enough of us knew, but we're, you know, you're a human being too. And you're kind of like, you want to see the guy do well. And there were usually people we knew really well. And actually in fairness, there was definitely one complete turnaround story with one guy we staked who, uh, tremendous guy, tremendous poker player, but was properly under it for a while. And we did stick with him and he came out and came out big. So maybe it's, maybe I'm being results oriented in the sense that the guys who didn't ultimately get out are the ones you kind of remember and think oh could have let him go 25k earlier uh, <laughs> or whatever it was but that's probably where you kind of have those lessons where you you're in a moment of time and you kind of have an opportunity to make a decision and you have to sort of live with it but there are nagging regrets maybe that kind of thing just, maybe just learning to trust your gut on those things more often yeah like your your intuition right i think like as poker players we understand that sometimes you just gotta fold and that's the reality of it and the times when you know you gotta fold and you don't fold at least in my experience haven't turned out so well 
So yeah, like basically it's just, but you're, instead of, instead of dealing with cards, you're throwing in the muck, you're dealing with human beings, you're throwing in the muck, which is a much more serious, um, much more serious thing. And yeah, it's just, I guess it, long story short, it's, it's complicated, um, in those spots. Yeah. I like, and I certainly don't think you were fishing for this, but like, I suppose to some people, I would be viewed, Dara to some extent viewed, the chip race brand viewed, I don't know, as antagonistic at times or as people who will sort of fire shots. And we do. And I think we're very selective about how we do. Like, again, I think we create a lot of content and then maybe the, the memorable thing that kind of went viral to some extent is maybe the, the big argument we had with something or the big stand we took against something. And then people go, oh, those guys are always just, you know, um, you know, looking for clicks and fighting the, the the big fights and trying to get press for themselves. But it's really not like that. It really comes down to choosing your battles quite carefully and cleverly, I think. And I think we've always done that very meticulously. Dara and I will often talk about things that we are mildly annoyed by in poker and just think, is it worth it? You know, how much do you want to put your reputation as a kind of a, a cage rattler on this? Is this a big enough deal? Maybe if something else happens, it is. Maybe we leave it for now. And um, and I think we make those judgment calls all the time, but I actually think we make them very well. And actually, I don't regret any even more sort of volatile public argument I had with anyone. I think I'd, I, I'd still stand by the side of it I was on. No, I, I have no idea. I, I wasn't fishing for that, actually. <laughs> no, no, no. It just hurt me. Yeah. Um, I, I think that maybe that's a perception. I don't know. Actually, I would say that, like, just me, my perception is that if either of you are antagonistic, it would be you and not Dara. I, I've never really seen Dara as, like, an antagonistic human being, um, but maybe... That- Dara was on a one-man... Well, I suppose I was helping him at the time, but he was, he was certainly on a... Um on a very anti-star sentiment back when they were being very poor to the poker community in general. And I thought his blogs in particular galvanized a lot of people's opinions around the right way to interpret what was happening. Um, I, you know, I, I think for the record, I think stars are, are very much reformed these days. And um, I think they're uh, both with their ambassador team and with their internal team, a very different operation. But, you know, I think it was absolutely right to be very, very appalled by what was going on at, at one time. And uh, Dara was, as loud a voice in the community as I think there was then. Um, that to me is just totally justifiable and merited based on. All justifiable and merited. Yeah. That's my point. <laughs> well, I guess every it's subjective, right? Some things are more justifiable and more merited, I guess, uh, than other things. But like, yeah, the whole star situation. I mean, I guess people that listen to my show know that I'm fairly antagonistic towards most poker platforms that exist. Um, in As you the should world. be, you know, we should all we should all be all the time. You know, we should always be pointing out problems because that is the only way you can do any amount of pushback on big multinational companies that are becoming more and more synergized and conglomerate. You know, we're like, we're going to end up at some point with like very few operators uh, out there. And without that competition of those guys fighting against each other, we have to do things with our feet. We have to, you know, more than just express ourselves with words, sometimes actually express ourselves with action. It's vitally important. So, you know, if you can offer an opinion which galvanizes people, which helps people go, yeah, kind of what that guy said. I, yeah, that now, now it's clear in my head. And then that message spreads. There is pushback there. Like 
people might go, oh, well, you know, the supernova guys never got their money back and things like that. And that's absolutely true. They, they fucking should have. They still should. Star should still go into their war chest and sort those people out. But within reason or within the context of now, you have to just always fight back on these things. And, you know, it could be an awful lot worse if you hadn't. Yeah, I mean, the reality is, you know, I've been in this industry for a long time. And if I know one thing, I know this. It's that the poker players as a community um, have to defend ourselves. And we cannot rely on operators to protect us because operators typically will not. I mean, it brings me all the way back to Ultimate Bet and the Russ Hamilton deal. Like, Ultimate Bet did not uncover the super using. They were not the people who found that. It was the poker community policing themselves. And like it, hate it, whatever, you have to live with it and understand that, like, we have to look out for ourselves. And that means calling out bullshit when we see it and calling out shenanigans when we see it um and you know at least in my case like there's no there hasn't been any operator that has backed up the brinks truck to bring me on board to basically squelch my opinion and i i would say that that's that will likely almost never happen because i don't want my opinion to be squelched (laughs) i don't don't want to have to i don't want to have to think about what i can or cannot say i want to be untethered so that i can try to approach what happens in the industry. Um, Well, I think that means that you're probably ruling yourself out of some of the big sites. Yeah. And that's fine. Because there's always a perception if you're with stars or GG these days or party poker, that if you do fire off your bigger shots against those sites, it's always viewed that, well, you're the guy from the rival doing it. I think in some way with some of the smaller sites, and I, I would champion Unibet as, you know, within the industry, an ethical site who have no scandals attached to them and have, you know, a a very good uh, track record when it comes to regulation and everything else. I would say that when you're with some of the smaller operators, you can still fire your shots because maybe their perception is like you're the Unibet pro and it's not like this kind of like stars party GG triangle. You're kind of outside of that firing in. And that's kind of okay. Do you think it kind of weakens weakens public perception of your opinion or makes the public feel like you're maybe biased? Oh, it should. You you should absolutely think that. The public should always take an ambassador's word with a pinch of salt. But they should also listen to the substance of what that person is saying. And if the substance of what that person is saying is very accurate, truthful, you know, circles in on what they think themselves then they can still have some confidence in it and they can still feel like it's the right thing. You know, I am absolutely there to be uh, bludgeoned in the public sphere. If Unibet do something wrong or something scandalous, of course that would be reflect back on me and I would take heat for that and I would be made answerable. It's exactly the way it should be. Unibet should not be doing things that the poker community think is really wrong. And if they did, I would be one of the faces um, who would have to kind of, you know, bear the brunt of that. So, I, uh, But I think that's right. I think that's the way it should be. Yeah. Um, and then that puts pressure on me internally with Unibet and whatever it would be to make sure we, are st- we stay on a good path and aren't viewed that way. And people will have their issues about different decisions made, I'm sure. But you have to still, you know, it, yes, any ambassador is probably uh, even more than actually just do you take it with a pinch of salt, 
you might even find with a lot of these, it's it's not in my contract overtly, but like you can't say anything about certain things. You know, like I, I don't know. I my guess is there's certain people in the industry right now who have signed contracts in the in, in the recent past who are being muzzled by the very site that they they represent. Now, of course, I, I can't go out there and say you know you need better crap, and I can't badmouth the brand. But I can talk about poker in a real way and I can make criticisms of Unibet that I think are valid. I can talk about our, if something was structured badly or our rake was too high in something. I can say that. And I have said that in the past about things that I thought we could do better. And I think it's part of an internal dialogue that we have in the company that, you you know, I have the ear of the head of poker, the marketing people. I should be able to have those chats um, and, and people should know that I also disagree if we do something like that. But it, but it does strike me right now that there are people in the industry you know, probably quite well-paid ambassadors or whatever they are who are not able to say what they really think and are actually being muzzled by their contracts. In fact, I've seen one of the contracts of one of these people at this tier and I know it's, I know it's ugly. Like I know they're being, you know, coerced or, or the, whatever the opposite of coerced is, muzzled, I suppose. Yeah, uh, basically shackled. They can't. Shackled, yeah. They can't say what their true opinion really is. And and to me, yeah, it's whenever you're a X platform pro, I, I think that you lose your ability to express bullshit when you see it within the platform that you're a sponsored pro. And I, I guess I guess for me it's too too, it's like unless you're at the very top of the top and and you're you're not uh, like a mid-tier, low-tier type pro for a platform. The financial payment is not enough to... <laughs> it's not enough to... Uh... It's not enough full stop, Brad. Like, I, like they're, they're honestly... They're, they're, it, it shouldn't be a price, you know? Um, it, it should be about being I don't comfortable know. in the role. If you, if you feel a like you could be a party a poker year. pro tomorrow... Hmm. If you feel like you could be a party poker pro tomorrow because you're happy with the way they run their business, you like the team, you think you know their uh, initiatives that they have planned and some things that they're going to do in the next while are good, then you can do that quite fulsomely. But if you don't and they go, oh, but here's a million quid, Brad, and you go, oh, okay, then. I don't know, man. I, like, I'm not saying people aren't human and they don't have their price, but I think that's problematical. I, I like to think I have my price, but I don't know. <laughs> 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 like I can't imagine somebody offers me, you know, somebody offers me that kind of deal, and like me telling my wife, I think she would just like, <laughs> she'd like, of course she'd, you're taking, <laughs> yeah, she would leave me immediately if I turned it down. Like I, I wouldn't really have an option, I don't think. But well, I yeah, thought that I mean, was funny actually. Uh, Doug Polk about I don't know, a couple of months ago now was doing one of his interviews, and he said uh, he was very funny about it because he was like, I don't want, I want to get out of poker now. You know, maybe I'll do a little thing, maybe I'll make a little bit of content, but I, I'm basically out again, and I want to be out again. So, well, hang on a minute. Like, if one of the big sites turned around and said, Hey, Doug, do you want to be a pro for us? Here's five million dollars. He'd be like, Well, I guess I'm a pro again. <laughs> so, you know, you know, I suppose to some extent, and of course, you can do a lot of good with any money you make. You know, you're not just obliged to, you know, stack it up in in your bedroom. I. Um, I don't know. I, I ultimately, ultimately, I think I I have had the opportunity to represent uh, or basically onboard different platforms that are a darker shade of gray than maybe some other ones that were very lucrative, 
things that I could have done. Um, and I did not do it because, yeah, because it was just wasn't in the best interest of my audience. It wasn't in the best interest of my listener to be involved in places where there's a very high risk, very high risk that something bad occurs with money because they believed in me. Um, I couldn't really lay, lay my head down on the pillow and live with myself. And when I say a significant amount of money, I'm like, it's a, an actual, yeah, like mid six figures, maybe even closer to seven figures a year type thing. Well, look, I, I just like when it comes to that, I just feel as though like at the, it's like it's a low bar. So you should be getting over this bar is that the site you represent are regulated. They are segregating funds. They are, you know, following the laws of Low all the bar. plans that they're in. What are you, you know, talking about? Lapid, you know where I'm at. There's no regulation anywhere. This is like a wasteland. And, but that's what I mean. Like that, that, then you could never offer that guarantee in that environment, in that client, in that climate. And therefore, I do think it's a much more difficult thing. Yeah. And the reality is, I, I think... Again, like at in the middle of last year, I just had this thought of like, you want to do this, you want to do this content creation thing, you want to help people, you want to make an impact, like you've got to put put on your big boy pants, and you have to do this yourself. And that was the conclusion that I came to. Because if I build my own brand, if I build courses that help people, and I build a community, then I don't need to be sponsored by anybody. Like I, there's not a poker platform I don't think in the US that could pay me enough money to take me away from what I'm doing in my community and what I'm doing with my brand. And so I don't even really have to think about it. I don't have to worry about it because I know that like what I've built is what I've built is great. It gives me fulfillment. I'm helping people and the revenue is growing over time, which is a side bonus and basically just means that like I don't I don't need that sort of sponsorship to enable me to make content forever. Because I mean, like you said, there's a lot of manpower, a lot of time, a lot of energy that goes into content creation. And so, yeah, I guess the way that I went about it was like, I'm going to bet on myself. And that way, I don't ever have to be in that position to where like, if I want to continue doing the thing that I love, I have to bank, I have to, you know, basically accept payment from someone who I may or may not agree with the things that they do. Hmm. Well, like just for, for just to, to point out that the, there is like it's not completely hypothetical in our case. Over the years, Darren and I have been approached but, but both before Unibet and while we were with Unibet by other sites who were interested in taking the show over to them. In a lot of those cases, two I can think of, there would have been a restriction put on. Well, you can't have pros from X site. So you, you, you're already being cut off from some of the potential guests. Now, mm-hmm. we have no restriction on guests. We have everybody and anyone. Um, we try and have a balance where we do have some you know, sponsored pros. And of course, they could be named as 888 pro so-and-so or whatever it would be. But we don't let them promote their, like the next 888 tournament that's on. Like that's not something that we're going to ever let someone do. But there is some implicit, I guess, benefit to them and their sponsor that they're on the show. But like I, but as soon as you were sort of like with somebody who said, "Well, you can't have anyone from X site," that just feels wrong to me, to be honest. Because I kind of feel like if 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 the point of your show is to sort of give a fair sweeping demographic of what's going on in poker right now, you can't cut off any avenue. You can't suddenly say, "Well, it's it, well, it's, it's the it's the chip race, but not that race." 
You know, it's the it's the it's 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 not that site. Yeah, and um, that's a red flag to me for a platform that I would never want to work for because I'm still I'm not far enough uh, removed from the game to not remember why I got in the game. And I got in the game because I wanted freedom and autonomy. And as soon as people start telling me what I can and what I cannot do or who I can and who I cannot talk to, that is, well, A, it tells me that they probably don't understand, they probably don't understand poker players (laughs) because taking away a poker player's freedom is like, yeah, I I think that most, most of us would say that like, that's a, that's the thing that they're not going to give away happily um, because that's why they got into poker in the first place. And so like, to me that that's sort of a red flag and yeah, like I'm just basically, I'm just going to do what I want to do and have the people on my show that I want to have. And I don't really, it doesn't really matter to me, I guess who they're promoting because everybody's got to make a living and everybody's got to do what's best for their family. So who am I to judge who am I to judge that somebody represents 888? But I, I do see the business side of it. But to me, it speaks for like a corporate, uh, just a corporate culture of like control that may may not understand how poker players operate or think or go through their lives. And would you put any sort of band list together? Like for this show, are there people where you're like, well, no, I wouldn't have him on because he represents something, not necessarily a site, but maybe an ideology or maybe an opinion that he has shared vociferously. Like, do you sort of, would you go, well, no, I don't want that person on. Or at some level, would you think, well, maybe I should have that person on and challenge them on it and whatever it would be. I've had both. I, I waffle back and forth. Luckily, the poker world is inhabited by a bunch of like really good humans that I want to have on the show. So it's not a, it's not really a thing that I have thought about a ton, but no, I mean, basically my opinions are subjective based on my own life experience. So really who am I to, if it's something somewhat reasonable, right? Like I think by somewhat reasonable, like I'm not going to have Bolzerian on, right? He probably, he doesn't want to come on the show, but again, I'm not going to have him on the show, even if he did want to, which, you know, again, because my wife would maybe divorce me if I did have Bolzerian on the show, but like, but hopefully not because you're what like I I like the first part of that more because it's like yeah I on principle I would not have Bilzerian and I would nearly have anyone on the show to be honest. But that's the um, point, right? If if somebody that I love, somebody in my close circle, like dislikes somebody this profoundly and this much, and, and they don't offer much value to the world, uh, to the poker world, then yeah, I don't want to have them on the show because what's the point? Yeah, no, look, I, I yeah, I, I just like. I'm offended by Bilzerian. Um, you know, you can do that. Well, I have friends who are women who are offended and I have, but it's not, I'm offended by him. I, I find him gross. And yeah. I think it's really gross that he's got quite a big position in the biggest up and coming company in poker. Like, I think it's good for poker to have companies doing well and, you know, challenging stars. But I think this is a really disgusting thing. And yeah, for that reason, like I wouldn't, I would do everything to deplatform him if possible. I mean, he can go, he can do what he does. Yeah. He just wouldn't come on my platform, I guess. I don't know. He's really the only person that kind of springs to mind. I guess there are, 
basically anybody that scams people. I don't want to give a voice mm-hmm. to anybody that takes advantage of the poker community who scams people. Um, that those would be my disqualifiers for the show. But like a different what a different political ideology, a different belief of platforms uh, sponsored from a company whose ideology I totally disagree with. I don't care. They can promote the company that they work for on my show and I could care less because that's just a part of it. But um, what about a reform scammer? What about somebody who had sort of maybe like done their dues since like maybe an early mistake and they've sort of done right since. I think that anybody who can go through their life and may and claim that they haven't made shameful and regrettable decisions um, is probably. No, but we're talking about scammers. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. Well, scammers, but, but, Really, it's just an overarching. I I got drunk that night and told my friend to fuck off. I mean, no, it's like an overarching theme of, like, of course, I would have somebody who's a reformed scammer on the show. Like, if I felt, you know, if I felt they were genuine and like remorseful, and you know, they had basically, yeah, of course, we've all made mistakes. I think we've all done regrettable things, and to just, to just label someone based on something that they did a long time ago that they have a lot of shame for and then exclude them when they're trying to make amends doesn't feel right to me. So I think that's, I think that's very fair. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I would have somebody on like that. That's, that's. Yep. We, we have had people like that on our show as well. I, I, and I think that's right. I think you're right. If there's a level of contrition or there's dues paid back to the community, I think that does change things. And I think it's important that their story is heard too. I think that they, they have, but- so maybe Dan Bilzerian will see the error of his ways and five years from now will go Beg on me. the Chip Race and the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast expressing how reformed he is. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Even hope. I, I don't think it's very likely, but maybe, maybe Lavin. All right, so let's uh, move on to the lightning round segment of this. And uh, we got about... Got about 11 minutes before KL drops in. Um, KL. Can can we do an overlapping interview with KL? (laughs) Of course. Why not? Um, Um, Fastest finger. I'm ready. I'm on on my buzzer. All right. What's a common assumption people make about their poker careers you think they ought to spend more time thinking about? Longevity. I think like far too many poker players are preoccupied with the big score. Um, I think maybe the whole backing culture within poker has been accelerated because everyone's chasing playing the big game and getting into the the big game for the big six seven figure payday and actually don't understand that really the, the key to this game is surviving in the game and giving which you know gives you time and puts you in positions to have these occasional outliers these occasional big scores but if you just like set your stall out to win a more modest amount of money each year, something that's actually very doable, then these other big scores may come along anyway, and that's really nice. But if you take too much risk, then uh, in, in the pursuit of the big score, it's way too easy to go broke, and far too many much better poker players than I have done that over the years. Yeah, I mean, it really, it's a long game. The The tournament doesn't end when you bust out. The session doesn't end when you cash out at the cage. It goes on forever and you want poker to be a sustainable career, then you have to treat poker like a profession. Um, there's just no way, no way around it. What's a purchase you've made in the last year that's been impactful to your poker game? Been on the DTO train longer than a year, 
but that was very good. I also have a run at once account. That's very good. Anything in the last year, though? Hmm. Pads on pads is very good. Does that count? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah, that's within like the last few months. That's pads, in the last pads few months. Pads. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's pads very... on pads at run at once too, right? At run at once. Yeah, that's really good. I bought in. I bought a new computer, which definitely has made my poker better because... Uh, it's a bigger screen and it's a fancier Mac. Uh, I've gone back to Mac. I was a Mac user for years. I went back to PC and now I'm back at Mac again. And, uh, and that's probably made things better just because just a bit nicer machine to use. It's probably made me some money, I'm guessing. I would say I, I bought, uh, I did that thing where I called my friend, like like we were talking about earlier. I called a friend who's tech, tech savvy and i said yo if you were gonna buy a computer for yourself that was gonna last you like five years which one would you buy and he sent me a link and i was like whatever i don't care about the price i'm just going to buy it and i have to say best thing i've done in a very long time not having to wait on things to load everything being fast like oh, I never want to go back to a world where <laughs> I can't process things very, very quickly. I am going to, uh, I didn't have to pay for this, which is why I didn't say it. But actually, most people would have to pay for it. I believe it might be on sale at six ninety nine right now on Amazon. Uh, Darrow Carney and Barry Carter's book, PKO Poker Strategy, is very important uh, information in that one for the modern game these days because so much of the tournament schedule is PKOs. There is some other good PKO stuff out there, but their book is the Bible for me now. And I think, you know, uh, if you can absorb a lot from that, there's a lot of shorthand ways of doing gorilla mats quickly. It gives you the kind of tricks of how to do, you know, these kind of harder, you know, uh, calculations on the fly. Um, I think that's been a, it's a bargain at what you pay for it. If you are happy to do some book learning, uh, I'm sure Dara has maybe some got some seminar courses as well. But that PKO stuff, it's probably more than a year ago or it's around a year ago, but that was very good. I would say that and I didn't have to pay for it. that was completely free. He gave me a signed copy, no money exchange hands. That's very generous of him, and it's six ninety nine too. So you would have had to break the bank to uh, exactly. to get your own. Well, and I don't, that mightn't even include shipping. So it might have been like ten bucks. <laughs> right. I, I think that just across the board, poker trading is relatively cheap, and lots of people mm-hmm. will disagree with that and say that it's expensive. But like as it relates to gaining skills that make you money straight away poker training as a whole like is extremely extremely cheap in my opinion and you're not going to find not going to find another another real industry where you can legitimately make like 30 to 50 dollars an hour in like a year worth of work and investing whatever five or ten thousand dollars in uh into your poker education so yeah always invest into training products and I, I think too like just with the pot odds model the way that it works is you find one thing like dara's book that costs seven dollars that makes you tens of thousands of dollars and it's just a pretty easy call oh i remember when it first came out and I, I i think it wasn't it was it is on sale amazon are doing a sale at the moment that's why it's that cheap but i think it's normally you know a kindle version might be 12 bucks or something and I, I said something like on Twitter, uh, this will literally pay for itself your first session back. You know, the first session you do, you can pick up those 10 books very easily on a screen of, you know, maybe multi-thousand games. Um, and 
a guy came in and was like, oh, that's a ridiculous thing to say. Imagine saying, like, you could make the money back in one night. And I was like, well, it's like 10. Of course you could. Like, you just, you can easily make a $10 mistake in a heap in a PKO. That's like something that's very easy to do when you're not really au fait with the, uh, the shorthand of how to work out the, um, the value of the bounty or whatever. Yeah, I have a course um, called Neutralize Flop Leads that I refer to as Nuffle. And it's just basically how to deal with donk bets. And it's I, I price it at $99 because it's like a single PDF and very, very simple. And everybody that bought it within 48 hours paid for itself. And I actually doubled the price because like, I just recognize it's so valuable. Kid goes, plays live poker. First night, uh, he's playing, like has a situation where a recreational player leads into him and he wins, like calls down with Kings on an ASI board and like wins a $3,500 pot. And it's like, okay, well, <laughs> basically Nuffle paid for itself 10 times over just in that one pot. So yeah, it's just... Uh, Poker training, just invest your time and your energy. A book like Dara, I mean, man, it doesn't seem controversial at all to say that $10 pays for itself over a session because what's $10 when you're playing poker, right? Exactly. And, and I think, you know, again, Dara and Barry are great this way. They don't they don't write books to make loads of money off them. You know, obviously they're happy when the book sales are good, but their primary purpose, I know for Dara especially, is that he likes being a teacher. He likes imparting knowledge to people. And he fundamentally believes something that I also believe, which is that all ships need to rise. If you can make, if, if you create content that's like thousands of dollars for the elite players to get super, super duper good, and there's nothing going out there at the cheaper levels for the you know fish or the recreationals or whatever you want to call them, and they're not improving enough. They're just going to get destroyed and then they're not going to want to come back because it's very obvious that I'm, I'm just getting battered every time I play poker. So you need to create content that makes them feel like they have a chance. They need to feel like they're improving. Their own games are getting better. Okay, the best players might still be getting better faster than them, but they need to be competitive. Variance in poker will always give them some chance. And if they can just have a few skills and they can just make a few, like Dara's Satellite Book, for example, is like the best example of this ever, because again, it's one of these ones that's probably a 10 quid Kindle or 20 quid book. And the amount of recreational players who've gotten into the full buy-in live tournament because they figured out that they need to fold some big hands late on. And just the, the explanation of those things and how it's sunk in has totally given them a much better chance, kept much more money in their ecosystem, which, you know, eventually the, the best players will win anyway. But if you skin these people alive too quickly and they just have no chance, then actually the game is in trouble. So you need to create training tools for, for all the buying levels and all the affordability. And in reality, with those two books, you're getting quite a sophisticated bit of knowledge or a recreational uh, price, if you like, price tag. Absolutely. And you could also make the argument that the content that y'all put out strategically is is free, right? Like there's a lot of strategic content that's read, readily available 100% free where you don't have to pay anything. And there's value in that as well. Yeah. Have you ever strongly believed something about poker only to reverse course later on? And if so, what led to that change of belief? I, well, yeah, I strongly believed that I shouldn't flat suited aces um, in position because I just thought I need to three better fold uh, those hands for a long time, I guess. Uh, I fundamentally didn't believe you should ever dunk for a long time was convinced that was not a thing. 
I yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, I I, I you know the click wars of two thousand and nine are just so perverse now, where people <laughs> are literally uh, just pushing buttons back and forth to each other, and it now looks insane that nobody ever thought of hitting call, and like let's let's go to the streets. But it was it was such a fundamental like razor folds mindset or psychology around poker for so long. I didn't defend ranges anything close to correct in the small blind or in the big blind. Um, just even just the notion of having to pretty much defend all my suited hands like that. Looking down at you know the ugly jack twos and queen threes, I, I put them in the bin for years. Right. That was that was leaking chips too. Yeah, I mean, it was just people not understanding how, like, pre-flop, a lot of the equities run together. And when you're getting a really good price pre, you, because of pot odds, you pretty much need to be defending very, very, very often, um, especially in tournaments with antis, you know, and this very small raise sizes just means you got to defend way I more often. Life, I thought live poker tells weren't really a thing insofar as I thought, like, oh, they're probably something, but I thought, oh, well, no, the game is just basically 99% strategy and doing the right stuff. And then I played live poker for, you know, a little while. And I was like, oh no, you can totally like get loads of equity out of people by just staring at them and figuring out what they have. So like I was totally blinkered that way too for years when I was just an online player. What led to those changes, do you think? Just continuing to develop your game? But just like, having any amount of open-mindedness to not necessarily always thinking you're right helps. And I'm somebody who will always sort of argue and debate my side of something. But that isn't meant to mean that because I'm arguing it very strongly means that I'm not malleable and I couldn't change my mind. The point of arguing something very strongly is to force your opponent who thinks differently to argue strongly back at you. And then maybe they'll convince you with a really good argument. And then you'll completely have a, you know, Copernican turn on it and, and, and believe something different. And that happens often for me. I, I would have quite big revolutions in my thought because I've adamantly debated the pros of one side of something only to figure out that a smarter person contradicted me too well and they must be right. Yeah, it's uh, you want to be wrong in those kind of debates because the, lo- the loser of the debate is the one who gains knowledge and is stronger for it and and i think that like as poker goes on we're going to see a lot of these things that were once thought of as ludicrous become more common and become more accepted by the the higher higher level thinking players um in the world and we're gonna uh, have a few of those i think we're gonna have a few of those within this paradigm so like right now obviously we're exploring the benefits of like single big blind bets and that was sort of not a thing. You'd sort of like 30% was like the bottom end of what you would have uh, fired out as a C bet years ago. And now it's like literally you're trying to find the smallest amount possible in lots of situations. Similarly, with overbets, we're exploring all the different ranges of ways you can do that. Solvers are obviously creating toy games where maybe we give them three or four options, but we're not giving them 20 options. And maybe if you maybe the 20th option, the, the weirdest, most extreme one would suddenly become the one they like more. And, 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 you know, discovering the strategy around that. I think the fact that ICM as a concept is being much more deeply explored right now and people are starting to get to grips with the benefits of it. But in a similar journey, realizing its limitations and realizing that, you know, future game equity has to be factored in somehow. And I imagine we're going to have computer programs which can simulate a sort of a more balanced value to your chips to the dollar amount 
at the end of the tournament. And I, I reckon that's a very, you know, unexplored area right now that I'm, I'm sure in a few years time will seem so obvious now because we have computers that can, you know, do these calculations. So now we have these better heuristics, these better ballparks for understanding what, you know, probably is the, the way I should change my range or whatever it happens to be. Um, that stuff is, you know, still the game's going to move on. Um, so we're, we're just as much as I'm laughing at myself 10 years ago, making mistakes then, I'm sure I'll be laughing at myself. 10 years from time. now. Yep. That's just the nature of poker. That's what makes it such a beautiful game, the complexity and just the depth of just the depth of it. It makes it exciting and interesting to continue on in this world. And uh, with that said, final question is where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you, David Lappin, on the World Wide Web? Uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter at DK Lappin. I'm there a lot. Uh, you can uh, subscribe to the Chip Race on SoundCloud or iTunes. You can hear my lovely voice and Dara O'Carney's lovelier voice. Uh, weekly because between the two shows the lock-in and the chip race we have something going out every week you can find me on unibet poker with my own ugly face avatar uh, in all the sort of 25 dollar and up games that we have nightly and you can tune in to the 100th episode of the chip race. when does this show go out i hope it goes out soon because we have a 100th episode of the chip race going out very soon it's all it's either almost coming out or it's already happened depending on when this happens uh, but please do check that one out we've got Doug Polk uh, on the show with Ape Styles and we've also got Annette O'Carroll wonderful Irish veteran who gives us a history of poker uh, in Ireland over the 70s 80s 90s 2000s it's a great episode so check all of those things out and your favorite podcast host me Brad Wilson submitted Brad a question for the 100th episode so I, I have a little cameo in there one of the longest cameos you asked a really long question on purpose <laughs> and you get a lot of airtime uh, almost as much as our secondary guest on the show your question was so long um, but we're delighted to to have you on there and of course and this is a promise we will have brad wilson on in season 15 so watch out for him this summer yep and i'll be there to promote it and uh thanks man i, I really appreciate your time and your energy and uh yeah we'll, we'll be talking again in the very near future without doubt and i have to say before i go credit to you and this show you are an absolute machine i know we joke about the number of episodes you do and i can even see your next guest appearing before me which is <laughs> the, the conveyor materializing belt earlier. Yeah. <laughs> but, but genuinely you are pumping out content you are creating great interviews really interesting material for people uh, and yourself to look back on, I'm sure over the years as well, but just for anyone who subscribes, uh, it's such a treat and you're always there to, you know, walk the dog with, or in my case, take some long walks around the coastline here in Malta. I, uh, I listen to you often. So thank you so much for all of that. It's my pleasure, man. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate the kind words and we'll talk soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.